Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. Mattia Riccardi. He's assistant, assistant professor at the Faculty of Arts at the University of Porto. We've already done an interview, I will be leaving a link to it in the description box. It was about Nietzsche, so and today we're going to talk about his recent book, Nietzsche's Philosophical Psychology. So, Dr. Riccardi, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on again. Well, uh, well, thank you very much for inviting me again. Uh, and it's, of course, a pleasure for me to be here um, making a second interview. So, thank you. Great. So, uh, I mean, what is philosophical psychology and in what ways does it differ from scientific psychology? Okay. Well, I think it's it's maybe not not a very common label. Is um, uh, uh, you know Nietzsche wasn't uh, a uh, experimental psychologist. He wasn't really a psychologist in the conventional sense of the term. But he 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 he, he came up with a lot of ideas about human psychology and insisted to be also uh, considered some sort of psychologist. So the idea is just to uh, point out that it is a some a kind of view about you know human psychology which is not uh, produced by a psychologist, let's say, in a uh, conventional sense, not by someone who does experimental uh, psychology. Uh, uh, this science was being um, uh, basically born by the time Nietzsche was uh, writing his own books. Uh, he was a contemporary of uh, Wilhelm Wundt, who is credited to being among the first, you know, to build this new science. Um, so it's a, it's basically a, a, a view of the human mind, of human psychology, more based on, let's say, a, a philosophical approach, based, let's say, uh, in in general on um, self-observation, um, maybe phenomenology. Uh, but but in the case of Nietzsche, he also read really some kind of uh, psychological literature on that was available available back back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But would you say that he was a naturalist in any way in his approach or not? Well, I think, you know, m- m- most Nietzsche scholars agree that Nietzsche was in some sense natural, uh, a naturalist. Now, he, 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 you, you have texts where he says that we should, I don't know, translate, translate um, man back to nature. Uh, it's not entirely clear what he means by that, but that he was in some sort some kind of naturalist. I think that's accepted by um, almost anybody. The, the point is how, how far this uh, naturalism uh, um, reaches, so to say. So is it really a complete uh, naturalism? So people like Brian Leiter says it is. Other are more, um, you know, other scholars uh, are more uh, modest in the way in which they uh, interpret Nietzsche's naturalism, but uh, it, it, at least we can say that he rejects everything which is supernatural. Um, uh, the more controversial point is how, 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 how strict, how um, close, let's say, to empirical sciences he, he, he thinks philosophy should should be. Um, but I, I, so no, that, 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 that's not really a, a, a something I, I, I um, Write about in the in the in the book. I, I, ju- I just assume that he is, in some sense, maybe a robust sense, a naturalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So uh, getting now into the meat, let's say, of Nietzsche's philosoph uh, philosophical psychology, I guess we first have to go through some concepts. I'm not sure if some of them are... I mean, I know that some of them, at least nowadays, are not exclusive to Nietzsche, and I don't know if they even originated with him, but uh, let's start with drives and effects. Okay. So could you explain each of them? Yeah. So, well, first of all, they are the two kind of mental things, so to speak, that Nietzsche thinks are most important to the way we work psychologically. So that's why I um, bring them up. So first drives so drives is uh, um so it, it's no longer a concept that is really um, uh, uh, um theorized a lot about in a contemporary psych psych psychology though it, it used to be uh, i don't know the beginning of the 20th century but uh, it's uh, um so it's more or less a behavioral disposition um uh, uh and uh, um but a behavioral disposition that has a, some kind of active order of urgent character. So it, it, it drives the agent to do certain things, to uh, uh, pursue certain goals. So it has this um, goal-oriented character also. And Nietzsche basically believes that what we are psychologically at the most basic level is just a bundle of, of drives. So we have all, all this goal-oriented behavioral and active dispositions. Um, effects, well, that's a more common uh, psychological term. It's basically uh, um, what we nowadays uh, often call um, emotions. Um, so that would be a paradigmatic case of an affective state. But uh, I think that's a, the, the, the domain of the affective is broader than that of, of uh, emotion. So uh, pains, for instance, have an affective uh, component. So every time we have uh, states, so mental states with a aversion um, component, for instance, uh, they they would count at least to Nietzsche's eyes as as um, effective. So it's a very uh, pervasive feature of of uh, our conscious life, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And what is the relationship between the both of them, between drives and effects? Yeah, so, uh, so Nietzsche isn't very clear about that. Um, he, he mentions them as being really the, the, the most basic, let's say, constituents of human psychologists. Sometimes only drive, sometimes only affect, sometimes both. And it's not really clear uh, um, what's uh, the relation. So what, what I suggest in my book is that so drives are more basic in, in that they are some kind of stable disposition. Effects are more like episodic. Uh, states. Um, and my uh, uh, idea is that usually um, uh, a drive is something that um, structures our effective life uh, in a certain way. So I just make an example to, 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 to make it easier to, to understand. So one uh, drive uh, could be uh, the drive to uh, protect your offspring. Um, so this kind of drive uh, is a stable behavioral disposition. So you do a lot of things to pro pro protect your offspring, not only uh, we human beings, but also, uh, of course, a lot of um, our animals. Um, and um, this means that on several occasions, you will have a certain kind of effective reaction because you have this drive. So for instance, if you see, uh, I don't know, your child 
uh, um, going towards some kind of danger, you will feel fear. Um, if you you may feel preoccupied about uh, uh, your um, children, or you may uh, feel happy or proud of them uh, uh, on very different occasion. And those are all um, affective states in a certain way, uh, dependent on the very fact that you have this uh, basic drive of, uh, that you want to take care of your um, of your children. Uh, so that's a, 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 an example of why of the way in which I think. Uh, drives and affects interacts according to Nietzsche. So effects are basically caused uh, uh, by by drives on several occasions. So my drive, I don't know, to take care of my children makes me feel um, uh, fear when I see them going towards a, 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 a danger. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily the case that one of them is more basic or fundamental than the other, and uh, and I mean one of them derives from the other, right? Like for example, effects deriving from drives or vice versa. I mean, or that's at least not clear, right? Yeah, yeah. I, do, I don't think they are uh, 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 that drives are more basic in that sense. Though so, you know, Nietzsche. Some there are some places where it seems to think that they really in uh, that that that. Uh, most of our mental life and also our affective life may derive from some kind of uh, basic uh, drive-like um, thing. Uh, uh, for instance, he, he, he says that at least once uh, about the will to power. He says, okay, in origin, we, we have this kind of drive, the will to power, and the rest is just a derivation of that, let's say, on a uh, uh, phylogenetic scale or something like that. Uh, so maybe he, he, he entertained that for this this passage where he where he says that is also very hard to um, uh, uh, interpret. But uh, so what what I mean? So it's not really uh, 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 that, but rather that uh, I think drives are uh, um, explanatorily uh, more basic. So if I want to know. Why uh, um, a father or a mother, you know, feel uh, fear because they see the children going towards a danger? I can say, well, because they have this drive to, you know, just take care of um, of their children. So I think it, 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 we can uh, appeal to drives to make sense of certain patterns of affective responses to the environment. So in, the, in that sense, I think they are explanatory uh, and basic. Uh, so Nietzsche sometimes seems to speculate that they are really basic in a more kind of uh, uh, metaphysical sense or, or, or just evolutionary uh, um, term, but that's not really something I, 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 I uh, investigate in my, in my book. I don't, I don't think he has really any, uh, um, any worked out idea about, about, about that, though, though you, you, we do find, as I, as I said, you know, this, this uh, speculation in uh, in Beyond Good and Evil about this possibility, you know, everything coming, everything mental deriving in some in in, in some form from a basic drive, which it, which it calls the will to power. Mm -hmm. uh, since sometimes it seems that at least he relates us to other animals, uh, do you know if he was aware of the theory of uh, natural selection and that he accepted it? Okay, that's a complicated question. So Nietzsche was uh, surely aware of certain theories um, about human, uh, about evolution. Uh, he was aware of uh, Darwinian um, 
natural selection theory, though in a indirect and not really very helpful way in in so he relied a lot of of German literature um, about that, which wasn't always I think uh, really uh, um, really reproducing Darwin's original ideas. Uh, but he he, he read. Uh, uh, biological books about you know, the evolution of um, in, a, in the biological domain and other um, books of that sort, like by Wilhelm Roux and Rolf Nageli, and so. But they, that, that's all uh, um, German um, German literature of of of, of the time. I um, I think for his psychological view, more interesting is a book that he also read by a French psychologist called Alfred Epinat, uh, which I talked about because he has some kind of direct influence, I think, on Nietzsche's views. That was some some more uh, 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 some kind of uh, uh, comparative animal psychologist. That's the way the Hofer himself presents the book, and. Uh, um, so I think it's a good example of how Nietzsche read this sort of empirical literature and psychology and biology, or uh, in this case, it's something in between, uh, um, and how it tries also to inform his views uh, based on on those readings. Yeah. So he, sh he surely knew a bit of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is it that in the book you call the semiotic claim? Okay, that's just the label I use uh, for a famous claim that Nietzsche makes in Beyond Good and Evil, according to which, uh, as he writes there, moralities are just the sign language of the effects. Uh, so the idea is just that um, the kind of moral judgment that we make, so the way in which we uh, evaluate things in a moral way, depends on um, uh, our affective responses. So it's basically a version of sentimentalism, as I understand it, anyway. Mm -hmm. What is the soul for Nietzsche? I mean, does, it, does he have that concept, and what does it mean for him, exactly? Yeah. Okay, first of all, it may be surprising to find that someone like Nietzsche, you know, who always uh, disparages about, I don't know, uh, uh, religion and so on, comes up with the notion of a soul. But, you know, the, uh, uh, it's important to say that in the 19th century, the notion of soul was still used uh, also, let's say, in psychological um, uh, context. So it's not uh, necessarily related to this kind of uh, religion worldview that Nietzsche was uh, obviously rejecting. And Nietzsche is clear about that, but he, done, he, he, he does want to uh, um, keep the notion of soul, but at the same time to, you know, reformulate it, you know, to re reconceive it. And, um, and he as, uh, proposes to conceive the soul, uh, as he says, as a um, social construction of drives and effects. And that's it's where, you know, we have this formulation suggesting that drives and effects uh, are the basic uh, items, let's say, uh, uh, in psychology, according to him. So that's the main redefinition of soul, at least the one I, I, I really focus on in my in my book. But it's a, so you can call it a naturalized um, notion of soul. You know, he is keen to say, well, it's, uh, of course, we no longer believe it's um, immortal. So it's a, it's, a, it's a notion of a mortal soul. Um, 
and so on. Uh, so he, he detaches the notion from the religious and also ancient uh, uh, tradition up to a certain point. And I've some, it's it's what one can see there are a, a, a some kind of tacit um, reference to, to Plato. Um, uh, who also uh, uh, has this kind of uh, view of the soul as composed by different parts, uh, and Nietzsche surely wants to uh, uh, build on 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 that. And also the idea that the soul is 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 also some kind of normative evaluative entity. So the soul parts in Plato have a, some some sort. Of, so they 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 are also relevant because they orient our um, actions. Uh, our agency and in Nietzsche drives and effects play um, uh, the same role. They uh, so we evaluate uh, things around us because we have drives and effects. Mm -hmm. For Nietzsche, what is the role of socialization? I mean, how does socialization influence perhaps the way we think, our minds work, our psychology in general? Yeah, so uh, I think that there are different uh, roles that socialization helps. So I think um, the first one is that, you know, it, it um, reshape uh, the way in which uh, our drives work. So through socialization, certain drives, and particularly the aggressive drives, are in some way or other um, kept in check and uh, um, new drives uh, are uh, um, developed or at least new behavioral disposition um, and also uh, our affective uh, life is um, you know changes um, accordingly so first we have then this kind of regulation or uh, reshaping of our uh, uh, of, of the way in which our drives are um, configured so to speak and second, uh, and that's an ever uh, claim that Nietzsche makes, um, the fact that we are self-conscious beings has to do with socialization. So he, 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 in, there's this famous um, heferism in, in gay science where he said, you know, that consciousness has to do with communication, um, is linguistic in nature. And so I think I, uh, the way in which we work as self-conscious beings has to do with socialization communication um, depends on the sort of um, social interactions, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, how did Nietzsche think about consciousness? I mean, what is consciousness for him and how did it work? Were there different kinds of consciousness? For example, you mm -hmm. just mentioned self-consciousness. Yeah. I don't know if that's one kind of it or not, so tell us about that. Yeah. So I think, in fact, you know, uh, the main uh, when Nietzsche talks about consciousness, he usually uh, means or is uh, typically interested in um, a certain kind of consciousness, which what I call reflective consciousness. Uh, it is, um, which is also a, uh, a type of self-consciousness, in fact. So it's uh, the, the, the capacity to consciously reflect, to consciously think on um, what we experience and what we do and so on. Um, and this is uh, uh, the kind of consciousness that is, according to him, dependent on uh, um, language and on 
um, so a, a, in an um, evolutionary perspective from uh, um, communicative practices um, from the um, so it it's something that is that that, that uh, um, emerged together with uh, language and um, communicative practices and so on. So with socialization, basically. Um, the question is, are there, so is just that what, what, what consciousness is, or do we have uh, different kinds of consciousness? So I think, um, in my view, uh, uh, many of the things that we describe nowadays as part of our conscious life, you know, cannot be covered by that notion of re reflective consciousness. And I think, so something like um, phenomenal consciousness or even uh, uh, the kind of consciousness involved in uh, uh, perception, I don't think they are uh, 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 covered by that notion. And I don't think that Nietzsche would deny, I don't know, that sensations like pains or that um, uh, perceptual states are uh, um, unconscious right mm -hmm. uh, for instance um, that uh, 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 creature with no language capacities would be strictly unconscious so I think he allows that there is a, a different kind of consciousness which is not language dependent so Schopenhauer basically does the same so I think there I see some continuity between uh, him and Schopenhauer so that, that that's the way uh, so the, the reason why I distinguish uh, between different uh, notions of consciousness and I, I, I try to say you know what Nietzsche may think about um, uh, these different sorts of consciousness but the, 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 the really major interest that he has in, in, is in this um, uh, notion of self-reflective um, or of reflective self-consciousness. Mm -hmm. Is there any relationship between consciousness and communication? So, uh, 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 if we uh, uh, focus on this uh, kind of reflective consciousness, yes, because that's that's the the, the basic claim he makes in um, in in this um, aphorism in the gay science. He, he, he says that you know uh, consciousness is tied evolutionarily and uh, um, in its very essence, so to speak, with language, in particular with uh, the communicative aspect of language. He said, well, when, and, 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 you know, hum, human beings um, need to uh, uh, get together uh, to protect themselves from a um, dangerous environment, then uh, to do that, I mean, they need to communicate. So language is, um, was born as a um, tool, you know, really to communicate to coordinate actions um, in this sort of primitive um, communities. And he, he, he has this uh, idea then uh, uh, that you know, the capacity for um, self-consciousness and also for self-knowledge builds on this. So we first learn to communicate and then we start to reflect on ourselves and we uh, start learning to express, I don't know, our thoughts, our Emotion. I think one idea is when, if we want to coordinate our actions, if we want to cooperate, we need to say to others, you know, what we think, how we feel, and and so on, and uh, um, and this then requires this kind of 
capacity to articulate in language our own mental life. And that's, I think, how Nietzsche sees uh, the relation between the evolution of consciousness and the evolution of communication and language. Mm -hmm. so, that, so that, that's uh, uh, relatively plain that he, he, he says this kind of connection, you know, given what he says in this um, half-reason and gay science. Mm -hmm. So, focusing perhaps just on the reflective type of consciousness, um, does it have any sort of causal power over behavior, or is it just epiphenomenal for Nietzsche? Okay, that's really a controversial uh, issue. So, some people believe it is more um, more or less epiphenomenal. Some say it has uh, um, causal causal power. So, I, I, I take some kind of uh, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much in the camp of the um, um, epiphenomenalist uh, interpreters, but I, 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 I also uh, try to specify carefully, you know, the, what what this epiphenomenalism I ascribe to, to, to Nietzsche amounts to. It's a it's a uh, qualified and relatively, um, let's say, narrow scope um, epiphenomenalism. So my, my my basic claim is that. Uh, reflective consciousness, according to Nietzsche, doesn't uh, directly contribute to the uh, production of token actions. Uh, it, this uh, allows that it may have, you know, um, different roles also, um, causal ones, in, um, let's say, in different areas of our uh, mental life but but that actions are basically caused by our drives or effects and not directly by episodes of conscious um of conscious thought so to speak so that's my um version let's say of an uh, epiphenomenalist reading of, of nietzsche so one could say well that's so restrictive that it doesn't really uh that it's not even worth the name epiphenomenalism okay that's a, a some kind of terminological issue at the end of the day, so I'm not uh, uh, um, absolutely uh, unmovable uh, when it comes to the label. But I think that uh, uh, the epiphenomenalist label is often used in a way uh, which is not very different from the way in which I use it. Uh, so what I mean, uh, many epiphenomenalist claims are in fact relatively restricted too, so they don't really uh, rule out any possible causal role for um, whatever uh, um, part of our mental life that, that is argued to be epiphenomenal. So I try to show that with a couple of examples uh, uh, to, to justify why I think that the, the um, epiphenomenalist label is uh, warranted also in, in that case. But that's more a, a conceptual or even terminological issue that's not so um, relevant, but uh, at the same time, it's a way of showing that it's not. Uh, that even if the 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 version of epiphenomenalism at stake is restricted, it's not a trivial or just a, a, a um, more or less extremely weak uh, claim. So it's still uh, um, a strong claim about how our mental life is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. But what are the roles that Nietzsche attributes to consciousness? Does it talk about specific roles or not? 
Yeah, so it's not really something that Nietzsche uh, um, specifies. So he, he, he says explicitly um, in two uh, late works that there is uh, uh, anything like um, mental causation, whereby what he, he means, I think, is conscious mental causation. Right? So this really suggests that he's endorsing some sort of epiphenomenalism. Uh, um, the point is, uh, uh, you know, what he says about this, um, and uh, in in the heavism from from gay science I mentioned, you know, he starts by saying, well, we have this capacity for for self uh, um, conscious thought and so on, but it's not clear why 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 we have it because we we can do it. In fact, we um, and, and almost all all of the time we do. Uh, what we do and we think what we think and we feel what we feel and so on without that being conscious in in that way, in the re reflective sense. So why do we have it at all if it's superfluous? Again, this suggests some kind of uh, uh, uselessness or non-causal uh, um, efficacy of, of, of the relevant sorts of consciousness. Now, uh, what is answered there is that um, precisely consciousness has to do with um, communication with social coordination um, it allows us to uh, um, uh, um, articulate linguistically what we think and to communicate it to other people and so it's not really something that we need to uh, act uh, to uh, um, let's say to move our body or something like that to um, produce uh, um, goal-oriented behavior and so on, but it's something that we uh, uh, we need to uh, um, communicate, interact uh, with other people. So I think uh, I, I make this quick suggestion in the in the in the book. It's very it's similar to to, to something that Chris Brief, as a you know a famous uh, psychologist, also says in a recent paper on on, on consciousness. And you know, he he says, well, we don't really need consciousness for doing many things, including uh, um, acting and so on, but uh, it's really something that we need for our social life. So it's the, the function of consciousness should be uh, situated in this kind of social interaction, social coordination. And so that's how I also think that Nietzsche situates the role, let's say, of, of self-consciousness. So and he says explicitly that's uh, so evolutionary, we have consciousness because uh, um, we need it to communicate and so on. So I think it's there that uh, for him we have to look uh, for its um, role, so to speak. Uh, but it is explicit that uh, it's otherwise superfluous. It says uh, we can think, feel and even act uh, um, without it. And he also uh, uh, says later explicitly, you know, in, in, uh, in the Antichrist and in the Twilight of the Isles, you know, that there is no mental causation. So we find the, 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 this expression in both, so this statement in both uh, um, works. And well, he, he uses the word geistic, and I think w what he means with that is is conscious mental causation. So that we that there's that there, there, there's no one, uh, no, 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 uh, no such thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and what are thoughts then? 
Okay, uh, so the notion of thought, I think Nietzsche is not really clear. I think um, uh, he uses that in a way that is uh, not very regimented, but I, I think we can distinguish um, on the one end, what we may call um, self-conscious thought or reflectively conscious thought, they are just episodes of um, uh, linguistically articulated thought. So they are um, happens which we think linguistically. Um, and I think a model for that is, for instance, uh, episodes of inner speech. Uh, at least I think that's a model to understand how Nietzsche thinks of, of uh, uh, linguistically articulated thought. And of course, when we talk to others, it's, it's something similar. They are also episodes of, uh, um, in a way, or uh, so they also episodes, let's say, of uh, verbally articulated uh, thought. Um, um, so that's one notion of thinking, that would be self-conscious thinking. Uh, but Nietzsche sometimes uses, you know, thought in a more um, broad sense, so in a broader sense, uh, uh, a bit like uh, Descartes maybe used the notion of uh, uh, thought uh, as a uh, translating, you know, the Latin cogitatio for whatever sort of cognitive or of mental process going on in our mind of where, where whereby you know um, Descartes uh, restricted that to conscious mental states uh, and Nietzsche doesn't do that so he allows also for something like unconscious thought uh, um, and uh, if uh, there is um, um, so if 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 Nietzsche then thinks that uh, self-reflective thought is uh, linguistic in in shape and nature, he thinks that uh, uh, unconscious thought is not. So it has to be some kind of different, let's say, representational format. I, 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 su su I suggest it is, um, uh, in many cases, at least pictorial. We can also think of uh, uh, mental states that don't have any kind of representational content at all, like pains and sensation. And it maybe Nietzsche sometimes, you know, covers uh, um, uh, those states do when he talks about uh, thought or thinking. So I think sometimes he uses that just as a very broad term uh, that we could translate uh, um, with cognition. So everything which belongs to the realm of cognition is covered by what he, he calls thought. Sometimes he uses in a more uh, he uses the term in a more restricted way and sometimes just to refer to self-conscious thought. In that case, I think there are those episodes of linguistically articulated thought, um, what he is thinking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, how does he place uh, thoughts in relation to drives and effects? Yeah, so if we, uh, so in this case, I think the, the, the question uh, is more pertinent when we uh, mean with thoughts, uh, um, uh, self-reflective um, uh, conscious thoughts. I, I think in that case, um, in general, so Nietzsche thinks that um, conscious thought is, uh, as he writes, a tool of the drives. Uh, and so basically, I, I would say I, when we think or reflect the way we think or reflect 
um, depends on the kind of drive configuration we are in uh, at that moment. So usually, is a so we we formulate thoughts that reflect the point of view of a certain drive we we have in uh, within ourselves, so to speak. So it's always something that so basically we could think of um, a capacity of self-conscious. Uh, thinking as some kind of purely rational capacity that uh, manages to uh, be completely detached from our drives, you know, you know understood as motivational uh, um, uh, dispositions. But I, uh, that's not how Nietzsche think, uh, uh, thinks of it. So he, 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 he takes uh, uh, self-consciousness or reflective consciousness to be always the upshot of the way in which our drives are um, uh, structured or uh, ordered at a, at, a, at a given moment. So um, there is no uh, um, self-consciousness and also no conscious self that is uh, uh, completely detached from the drive. They say when, when, when we complain about a drive, uh, you know, it's usually another drive complaining about it. So it's always a, 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 the perspective of a certain drive that is expressed, let's say, by our thought. Mm -hmm. But is there such a thing as the self for Nietzsche? And what would that mean exactly? Yeah, so I think, uh, again, it's useful to distinguish maybe different notions of self. So one could think of the self as some kind of um, conscious self completely detached, let's say, from our bodily constitution or something like that. Um, and I think Nietzsche surely denies that there is a, a, a conscious self of that sort. Uh, um, uh, what he thinks we have is a uh, conscious, self-conscious point of view or a self-conscious perspective. But, you know, as I uh, already mentioned, um, uh, before this conscious perspective, conscious point of view is just the upshot of the way in which our drives are uh, configured at the end of the day. Um, so it's not something, it's not a, a self that exists uh, beyond our drives and some kind of um, independent entity, so to speak. But Nietzsche also uh, um, uses uh, um, the notion of self to um, describe precisely um, the order or configuration of the drives constituting us. So in there, there, there's a famous speech in Zarathustra where he distinguishes between the I and the self. So he uses the German words Ich und Selbst. And, you know, the I would be this um, self-conscious self and the uh, self is just, you know, the configuration of our drives. And he says that the, the, the I is just the expression um, uh, of the self, so uh, which um, combines with what I've said before. So the self is the real self. So the, the self-constituted uh, drive is our real self, so to speak. And um, or our basic self and the conscious point of view we have uh, what we uh, usually take to be our I, though, to, to stick to, 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 to uh, um, the kind of terminology he, he uses, is just an expression 
um, of this basically uh, drive constitute itself. So I use this distinction uh, that Nietzsche himself um, makes in uh, this speech by Zarathustra, you know, to make sense of his views about the drives. So, and, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the beefy notion of self is uh, uh, proposing is the one that he calls selbst, the one constituted by our drives. Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, does it correspond in any way to that kind of sense of unified self that we tend to have, or is that simply an illusion for Nietzsche and the self is just this sort of bundle of different uh, drives, for example? Yeah, so I I wouldn't say it's just a bundle of different drives in the sense that, you know, for Nietzsche, um, you know, drives, as as he says in this uh, reformulation of of the concept of of soul, you, you know, the drives, they form a kind of hierarchical um, structure. Mm-hmm. And as, so I, I would say, um, if there, so there is some kind of unity to our um, uh, uh, self, but it's some kind of functional unity. So it's, 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 okay. um, it's, it's uh, the functional unity of the drives in the way they are ordered or structured uh, and the kind of arrangement they, they uh, yeah, they have. Uh, of course, there isn't uh, for him some kind of uh, unity in the sense of I don't know a transcendental unity as in a in a, in a Kantian picture or a, a substantial unity as in a uh, um, Cartesian picture. You know where the self is uh, um, the principle is uh, when we have some something like conscious self as the a, a principle of unity. You know of our. Uh, um, experience or something like that you know of, of course Kant doesn't understand that as an entity but, but as, a, as some some kind of transcendental function it's not it's not it's not very easy to to understand what he means by that but anyway I don't think there isn't uh, there isn't anything like that in in um, uh, in Nietzsche's picture so he, 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 I, I think he, he of course he, he uh, um, agrees that we have that kind of uh, impression. So we uh, experience ourselves as having this kind of, let's say, unity, which is completely independent from our bodily constitution. But I think he, 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 try, he, he tries to explain it as uh, something that derives from the very way in which uh, our linguistically shaped self-consciousness works. And that kind of uh, unity we Sometimes at least seem to have. I think e, 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 in he would say is more or less illusory. So it's a, it's 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 just part of the way we experience ourselves, but it doesn't really correspond to the real unity that we have, which is I think this sort of functional unity of our um, of our soul, understood as a as um, yeah the social structure of drives and effects, as he puts it. Mm-hmm. How does Nietzsche think about self-knowledge? I mean, do we really have access to uh, self-knowledge or accurate self-knowledge through introspection or other means? Um, so, well, so the quick answer is no. Um, so Nietzsche is a uh, is a hard critic of introspection, let's say, and of uh, introspective self-knowledge, which 
uh, makes his position somewhat um, uh, uncommon, let's say, in the history of philosophy. You know, Schwitzgebel uh, wrote a couple of years ago a, a very uh, a very nice paper on uh, against naive introspection, and he says, well, you know, uh, it starts by saying philosophers disagree about basically everything, but it's it's uh, they, they they seem all to agree that you know introspection is a real thing. So it's it's really the 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 uh, some kind of um, almost infallible or at least highly reliable kind of um, source of, of, of knowledge about ourselves. So Nietzsche is one of those who uh, um, disagree with this, uh, you know, general, um, generally accepted view. And I, I think, you know, uh, this generally accepted view um, can be seen as, as, as a combination of two basic claims. One is that we, uh, uh, we have some kind of direct access to uh, our mind through introspection. So the idea is, well, okay, I can feel the pain of our people directly, but I can feel uh, pains directly in my case. So I have direct access to my mental life. And the second, um, and the second claim is that, you know, this, uh, um, uh, this uh, uh, access is epistemically privileged because it is direct, you know. Uh, so I know myself much better than I, I other people can know me, um, at least when it comes to my mental uh, or psychological life. So, and Nietzsche um, rejects uh, both views because so he first thinks that we don't have this kind of uh, direct um, apprehension of our mental life. He, he, he defends a, an interpretive picture. So he says, you know, uh, uh, when we try to uh, uh, know ourselves introspectively, what we do is just reflecting upon our mental life. And we do that, you know, by applying a certain uh, psychological uh, um, picture of, of the mind. Um, and so we interpret ourselves in the same way in which we interpret our people at the end of the day. So it is, a, is an exercise of self-interpretation. And, uh, um, and this means, you know, self-interpretation as interpretation, interpretation in general can go wrong. And Nietzsche thinks uh, 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 it does go wrong uh, um, in many ways. So one one point is that you know those uh, uh, psychological uh, framework we adopt to make sense of what our think and how they act and so on. Uh, it's 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 usually something that entails a lot of let's say mistakes. Uh, and so we are misled in interpreting what other uh, people do, and so we are also misled in uh, interpreting what we ourselves do. Um, uh, a major example would be uh, uh, many morally um, loaded uh, uh, beliefs, you know, that are part of standard uh, folk psychological frameworks. Uh, so that's one reason why I think that uh, uh, this kind of self-interpretive uh, uh, introspective access is not really uh, a very reliable uh, source to uh, understand what we really are. So we, we are uh, often misled uh, by it. And so it thinks that a better way is often a third personal um, way. So maybe other people can know me better than I do. So I think Schwitzgebel makes another nice example where he said, well, your wife may know better than you when you're irritating. So you may deny that you're uh, 
irritated, you know, but she knows better, you know, um, just looking at your face and how you behave. Uh, and a second, uh, um, um, and a second example, which is closer to what you, you know, to what uh, Nietzsche does, is just you know, Proust uh, um, swing. Um, a third personal investigation about human nature, first uh, based, let's say, on uh, empirical uh, um, sciences, including you know the uh, uh, things like anthropology or the study of human uh, history in its very uh, forms, uh, and uh, um, also uh, uh, the sort of genealogical investigation that he himself pursues, for instance, in the genealogy of morality. So though those are uh, um, ways of making sense of ourselves that are not based on self-introspection, but they are based on, let's say, uh, a third personal access to, to what we are. So it's a, it's a different kind of, of exercise of self-knowledge. So I think that he would say uh, um, uh, it's, a, it's a mistake to assume that, you know, we, we are so good at making sense of ourselves. So uh, um, uh, maybe uh, uh, we have to step up out of ourselves to know uh, ourselves better, you know. Um, for instance, uh, uh, stepping out of the moral outlook we just inhabit uh, in a certain tradition to um, uh, to understand better, you know, how how that moral look as such uh, uh, has shaped our uh, our mind. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one of the ideas that is perhaps the most, one of the most characteristic of Nietzsche, of course, I think it originally comes from Schopenhauer, but what is the will? Yeah. Well, you know, Nietzsche, uh, um, as, uh, uh, you know, he may have a, a fancy metaphysical uh, notion that it comes close to the notion of will in Schopenhauer, which is the will to power. But when it, we know, but 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 if we uh, just look at the will, is basically um, whatever um, part of our uh, psychological uh, constitution that you know makes us act. Uh, so is the is a psychological faculty um, that is responsible uh, for producing our actions. Um, so, uh, well, Nietzsche, uh, in a certain sense, rejects that there is uh, a will as a, some 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 kind of you know psychological faculty or something like that. So uh, we could say he has a reductive view in the sense that he, he, he again says that the, the the will is basically constituted by uh, the way in which our drives and effects you know uh, interact. Uh, so I think again, he, in my view, he. Uh, he is inspired there by uh, uh, certain views by uh, uh, contemporary psychologists. I, I, I focus in my book on a French psychologist, uh, uh, Ribot, who was very f important and famous back then. And uh, um, uh, so, uh, basically, uh, I, I, I would, uh, let's say, sum up is. Uh, um, Views in just two 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 quick claims. First, you know uh, what really makes us um, act are at the end of the day our drives and effects. So that's again a version of something we saw before. And so if we want a really uh, uh, 
if we want to identify something that plays the role that uh, tra traditionally is ascribed to the will, then that's again uh, the structure of uh, our uh, drives and effects. Second, uh, our uh, um, so uh, when we talk about the will, we uh, sometimes also mean the kind of uh, volitional phenomenology that we experience when we uh, act intentionally. And uh, um, and Nietzsche says that you know uh, Hoffer's a uh, 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 very um, a very uh, um, are you yeah I, I didn't want to say debunking but um, well so a highly revisionary picture uh, and analysis of that phenomenology uh, um, this phenomenology uh, tells us that uh, I don't know um, our conscious intention is what usually causes um, our action and so on, as 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 long as as uh, uh, volitional phenomenology suggests that Nietzsche thinks is uh, is um, is something that that um, that is illusory uh, because uh, what really causes our actions uh, are again uh, our uh, uh, subpersonal drives and effects um, and so uh, there is this uh, uh, second part of this theories about the will or views about the will, uh, uh, some sort of, um, again, skepticism or um, about, you know, the deliverances of volitional phenomenology, which again, I mean, it's, it's, it, it can be seen as part of this more general skeptical picture about introspective uh, uh, knowledge. Mm -hmm. Did Nietzsche make any claims about free will? I mean, do we have free will? Do we not? Do we have anything to say about that? Well, it says, in fact, um, many things about free will. Uh, it's it's something that I don't really pursue in my book. Um, I didn't have an, a, 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 a very clear picture, so I, I have more of a, um, let's say, a, a working hypothesis about you know what what he uh, thinks about the, the the will. So basically, there are two main uh, ways of seeing um, things. Some say that Nietzsche simply denies that um, we have anything like free will. And, you know, you really find a lot of uh, passages suggesting that, not only in the middle Nietzsche, let's say, in uh, um, Human All to Human, but also later, you know, uh, um, up to um, uh, um, the Twilight of the Idols. Um, but uh, um, at the same time, you have, uh, uh, from time to time, let's say, occasion where he uh, seemed to uh, um, uh, defend or endorse a certain notion, uh, a certain positive notion of, of free will, or uh, at, at least of freedom. Uh, this is, of course, a bit puzzling, uh, but uh, that's the, 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 the basis on which others say that Nietzsche doesn't really uh, give up completely on the notion of freedom, uh, but he he he, he, uh, he gives some kind of positive, uh, however revisionary char characterization of that of that um, of that notion. So um, basically, you have um, let's say interpreters who see uh, um, Nietzsche as a um, hard determinist, uh, like Brian Leiter. Uh, 
and uh, interpreters uh, who um, think that Nietzsche is a compatibilist, maybe a uh, revisionary one, highly uh, revisionary one, maybe you know, who who who, who saves freedom, but you know, in a reconceptualized re re uh, um, way. Um, so people like I don't know. There you 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 have quite different ways of spelling out what what freedom means. You know you have I don't know people like Ken James or uh, Paul Katz, founders John Richardson and so on. Uh, uh, so in I, I so I think that you know uh, uh, if there is a notion of freedom that Nietzsche preserves is really highly um, highly um, revisionary. But so my 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 main uh, um, hypothesis, so uh, which is really just a, an insight, which I don't even know it is uh, an insight at all. But uh, is that uh, Nietzsche's? So what what makes his his his, uh, uh, his views about free will hard to square uh, um, uh, is that um, he, he seems to think that you know it, it's just a mistake to assume that the notion of free will is just a purely descriptive metaphysical notion. So he often takes that notion as a uh, as a target of his criticism uh, let's say the tra traditional notion of free will and and, and then he, he talks about uh, determinism and so on but um, but I think that uh, uh, his main insight is that you know when we talk about freedom um, the notion we use is not purely descriptive but always uh, has in itself built in, a, an evaluative uh, standpoint, and so on. and I I would say that he want to um, contrast, you know, uh, usages of freedom uh, um, that have built in an evaluative viewpoint that he rejects with with a different notion uh, that does the same. It's not a purely metaphysical descriptive notion, but it's built in it. Uh, an evaluative viewpoint. That's why I think he uh, uh, usually uses this notion of freedom uh, in a very closer uh, conceptual um, relation to that of nobility, which is, of course, uh, evaluatively um, charged. So that's basically my, my uh, insight. So, and if it's more or less right, uh, I, I, think, I think it helps to explain why it's so difficult to square Nietzsche and to uh, ascribe his view to a compatibilist or uh, um, hard determinist camp, because those positions assume that the notion of and that the problem of free will is just a purely descriptive metaphysical one. Okay, is can so can we have freedom uh, given that, that uh, we are in some in, in in some way determined or or not? But I but I I think how Nietzsche puts things suggests that the notion of freedom and also the way he uses it. Is not purely uh, descriptive, metaphysical, but also uh, has a normative dimension to it. So that's that's, as I said, just a an idea, and I, I didn't uh, work it out in the in the book. I maybe I will do that at some point later. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is there any space for agency in Nietzsche's psychology? Yeah, I think there is. I mean. Um, so surely Nietzsche thinks that you know that we act 
and it gives a uh, what we may call a theory of action, you know, based on, on, on his view of the will, you know, on his drive psychology and so on. Um, now, uh, one could say, well, is there any, any, any uh, space there for some kind of uh, more robust notion of agency or something, but, uh, um, an agency that we can call uh, maybe um, autonomous or something like that. Um, again, I think that's really uh, um, involves the same kind of problem that we have in saying, so is there something that we can call free agency according to, to Nietzsche, right? Uh, so if, if uh, so, in that case, the notion of autonomous uh, um, agency would be, I think, highly, um, highly re revisionary, you know, according to, to to Nietzsche's picture. But I think, you know, for for um, so Nietzsche distinguishes between. Um, uh, so. It, I, th I think we, we, his basic distinction is more different uh, kinds of, let's say, psychological makeups or psychological types, so to speak. And uh, um, I think some of, uh, uh, of them display uh, a more uh, um, successful, so to, say, so to speak, uh, kind of agency. Um, and I, I think that has to do, uh, at the end of the day, with the notion of uh, um, values. Right, so I think uh, 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 what good agency or, or genuine agency amounts to in uh, Nietzsche's eyes is, uh, you know, has to do with, with uh, um, evaluation and, and, and value. So uh, well, that's maybe something that pops up again in our questions, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, I mean, Nietzsche talked about a sort of ideal human type. What is this? Yeah, so that's so that's basically what I, I I was trying to you know gesture at in 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 the last um, answer. Yeah. Um, so Nietzsche, of course, you know, is not really that much interested in uh, or only indirectly so in let's say uh, a descriptive view of the human mind, but is more interested let's say in uh, in offering a a, a uh, picture of 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 the human being that can serve you know his project of. Uh, Revaluation of, of, of values, you know, and and so he says. Well, we 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 um, he sketches what we may call uh, the picture of an ideal human human type, um, which uh, embodies, you know, this um, ideal of reevaluation of values. So something uh, that that contrasts, I don't know, Judeo-Christian morality and so on. And I think uh, um, so. In the in the last chapter of the book, I I, I try to uh, say something about that and and see how how his view of the ideal human time connects to his general views about human psychology. And I think there are certain traits that we can um, ascribe to this general uh, to this um, ideal type. First, it has to display a certain strength of will, which means um, it, it, given Nietzsche's drive psychology. Uh, uh, the ideal human type has to display some sort of uh, psychological stability, it has to have uh, um, a s uh, stable uh, drive drive structure, because otherwise it couldn't uh, uh, really do um, anything uh, worth pursuing. So, so it's it's so that would be just a basic 
uh, um, condition on successful agency in general. But I think that that's not um, sufficient for a uh, someone to you know to be an ideal type of the Nietzschean says just to 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 display this sort of strength of will. You know, and he makes that clear considering the case of the fanatic. So the fanatic also has displays a lot of strength. You know, he can really uh, um, comply uh, and he can forces himself to do um, very uh, tough things in fact. But he says that's not really a case of uh, um, real strength of will, but not really a case of uh, um, free will. So it's it's interesting that there is one of those cases where Nietzsche uses the notion of free will in a positive way. So what's the problem of a fanatic? So one could say, so I, th I think one, a, an obvious problem that is something that other um, scholars like James or, or Katzefan has already uh, worked out is the idea, you know, that the fanatic is a alienated, divided um, uh, um, type psychological type, you know, he has to repress a lot of his drives um, and basically he is not unified, he's a uh, disunified, uh, self-alienated and so on. And of course that's a, 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 a not what Nietzsche imagines as, you know, the ideal human being. And so a uh, second condition uh, beyond strength of will would also be this kind of um, unity or a uh, uh, lack of self-alienation that we see in the case of a fanatic. So the fact that he, he doesn't have to repress or just eradicate certain drives. Um, but Nietzsche seems to think that that's made, so at least Nietzsche sometimes points to a fervor, uh, a fervor uh, feature of ideal uh, types, uh, uh, which again is something that uh, um, uh, I, I think he has in mind when he says that the fanatic doesn't display any free will. Um, basically, this fourth feature, this fourth feature, is uh, uh, the capacity to act according to values that the self has uh, set herself or himself. So not to act. So uh, and and I, I'm, and I mean that's a notion that we could um, understand as uh, um, a version of um, autonomy. So it means just acting, let's say, on values that you uh, you set to yourself, and not acting on values that come, let's say, from outside or something like that. Uh, the fanatic, according to Nietzsche, is someone who acts on values that aren't really set by himself or by herself, and that's another problem of the fanatic, I think. So we would have then three features: strength of will, uh, first. Um, being a unified uh, human being, the second one, and uh, being a uh, uh, someone who is able, you know, to set his or her own values and to act upon uh, values set in, the, I mean, in that way. Uh, why this third feature is so relevant or, or, or is really a necessary feature is, is a bit puzzling. Uh, my suggestion is that, you know, that has to do with the kind of situation in which we uh, late moderns, Nietzsche readers, uh, find ourselves uh, in. So his, his project is that of a revaluation, right? And so that's, it, that he saw, you know, his contemporary in the grip of, of Judeo-Christian morality. So to become a, a, an ideal human type, you know, you've, you know, um, late modern uh, um, 
human beings need to first uh, invert, reevaluate uh, things. Um, and that's why I think he, he, he puts so much uh, weight on this on, on this feature. So we have to be value creators because uh, otherwise it means that we are accepting those, let's say, nihilistic values of Judeo-Christian morality. But I think this first feature in a different historical uh, age uh, may not be uh, necessary for someone to be a... Uh, um, let's say, an ideal human uh, human agent, according to, to Nietzsche's um, own own views. Right? But I think it's necessary, let's say, for uh, late modern Europeans, you know, who are still in the grip of uh, Judeo-Christian morality. So that's how I, I, I see why he um, insists so much on this uh, capacity, you know, to set your own values, to emancipate yourself, let's say, from received uh, values to set your own standards and so on. So, so, so I, I don't think it's just some kind of individualistic um, uh, um, uh, viewpoint that he is defending. It has more to do with his project of uh, um, revaluation and with the historical uh, condition he saw, you know, uh, 19th century Europeans to be stuck with. Mm -hmm. So, um Please correct me if I'm perhaps oversimplifying things here a little bit, but when it comes to the capacity to create one's own values, I mean, just putting aside what we know nowadays from social, moral and political psychology, I mean, just within the Nietzschean framework, the Nietzschean approach to the human mind and human psychology, I mean, is there really any space or is it possible for us to sort of overcome or put ourselves outside of our psychological predispositions in the form of drives, effects or whatever to really be able to create our own values? Or, or is that not really what Nietzsche had in mind? Okay, so... Uh, um... So what I think that Nietzsche has in mind when he says that he should create new values, I mean, so first of all, he, he, he really seems to uh, believe that, you know, evaluative attitudes are something that uh, in our uh, psychology depends on uh, this deeper configuration of our drive. So basically to change the way in which we value things, to create new values, means at the end of the day to uh, um, change the configuration uh, of our drive. So, for instance, okay, that's really an, 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 an example uh, that is um, very uh, common, let's say, when we talk about, about nature. So, he thinks that, I don't know, Judeo-Christian morality has created uh, a certain drive configuration in ourselves. For instance, it has uh, um, well, it contributes uh, to the repression of aggressive drives or to a redirection, let's say, of aggressive drives towards ourselves. Uh, um, uh, that ends up in the uh, uh, common feeling of, of, of guilt uh, or, or at least in a, in a very specific way in which we feel uh, um, guilty on so on. So, uh, to, uh, um, so to uh, uh, reevaluate values means, uh, for instance, you know, uh, reshape our drive configuration so that uh, uh, we no longer feel that kind of uh, um, guilt, you know, that 
we now feel as product, let's say, of, of, of Judeo-Christian morality. So that would be an example. But, you know, you really have to, um, so the, the, the place to, uh, uh, to change think would be this deep level of our human psychology where drives and effects are uh, involved. So um, how to do that? So I think Nietzsche's, uh, Nietzsche writes his works also with uh, this aim. So I think one one uh, aim, sort of the Chris Genoway, I think, uh, has put this in a very uh, um, illuminating way. So, But one of the uh, goal of, for instance, the genealogy of morality is to uh, uh, um, detach the reader effectively from Judeo-Christian morality by, by, by you, you know, by creating some kind of uh, um, aversive response to it, at least in, in certain readers. Um, so that it's, it's so acting in this way to our effective um, uh, constitution, you know, helps uh, at least reshaping uh, a bit what we uh, what we are psychologically. So I, I, I think revaluation uh, is supposed to work in this in this way. So to, just to to change our uh, effective uh, uh, reaction and disposition. That is, at the end of the day, uh, our drive um, and effects configuration. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it answers your question. Yeah, I mean it's very complicated, I guess to understand this aspect of Nietzsche's philosophy. But anyway, uh, just two more questions. Uh, in what ways do you think that Nietzsche's philosophical psychology differs the most from the approaches by other imminent, prominent philosophers? Um, okay. Um, well, it depends, you know, which uh, philosophers, I'm, I'm, I mean, we compare it to, um, I think, you, 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 so first of all... Oh, okay, so, so perhaps yeah. the most distinct uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. traits. So, okay. I, I mean, well, some, some uh, you, you could compare it, I don't know, to uh, Kant, uh, um, mm -hmm. more of psychology. I mean, there is a, 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 where probably the distinction is, is uh, clearer, so you, you, you don't have this... Um, Kind of, uh, let's say, transcendental uh, story, you know, about um, um, the human, uh, the human mind. Uh, it, you know, at the level, let's say, of uh, theoretical philosophy, and also at the level of practical philosophy. Uh, so some would say that, you know, uh, what Nietzsche offers is a variation on on uh, on Hume, on Hume's more psychology. And we find in Nietzsche, plausibly at least, a um, uh, a version of sentimentalism, which is uh, what Hume already proposes. Um, and so someone like, for instance, Neil, Neil Sinebab, you know, you know ar uh, argues that basically a Nietzschean, uh, Nietzschean psychology is a, is a uh, version of human psychology, uh, still interested, uh, still an interesting one, because, you know, you get certain uh, details or certain um, uh, claims, you know, that that don't don't appear in in, in Hume, but that you find in Nietzsche. So you could, let's say, you refine uh, the human, the Humean uh, uh, view of the mind, you know, by uh, uh, plugging in certain uh, uh, Nietzschean insights. So I don't uh, um, disagree with, with that. In fact, I think there is a, a surely strong, um, strong 
um, similarities between human and nature. I think there are also some dissimilarities, but they are more local. Uh, and um, so maybe you could almost uh, uh, without loss translate uh, uh, you know Nietzsche back to Hume or something like that. Um, I, I think they uh, they disagree about certain certain uh, uh, things, but maybe not so relevant. And um, of course, you know, I, I think a major difference is that uh, Jung doesn't really to factor in this difference between conscious and unconscious mind, and and that plays a, a big role in it too. So that I think makes probably the the, the most difference between these two uh, philosophers. So and, and maybe uh, that's also one reason why it it may not be so easy after all to really translate back Nietzsche to uh, um, a purely human. Um, view of the of the of of human psychology um yeah so some could put that also in a relation to aristotelian you, you, you know um uh, psychology um i think you know nietzsche i i think that uh, uh, Seems to imply some notion of you know second nature, and I mean you 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 could probably read Nietzsche in that way, but I'm I'm not very sympathetic to this kind of of reading, so I don't think that uh, uh, for Nietzsche there is anything like a really robust Aristotelian second second nature. So maybe you could see there also a difference with um, um, Hegel too. Um, so uh, you, we we started by, by by talking about you know naturalism in um, in Nietzsche and uh, so recently you also have naturalistic reading of uh, readings of of Hegel for instance by by Pinker, but Pinker you know is is very explicit that this sort of uh, naturalism is of Aristotelian uh, um, is of the Aristotelian sort. So the idea is that okay we acquire some kind of second nature. Um, uh, which is not really uh, completely detached from our first nature, um, uh, but that is, uh, you know, is a really substantive add-on, so to speak, and it, and that that really, in a certain way, also supersedes uh, our first nature. So, uh, um, at least as I understand it, um, um, so uh, to use a, a, a Hegelian term is a is a is a half able of our first nature. So our second nature is so it preserves something, but it really transforms this also in a into something quite 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 different. And I, and I and I don't see that uh, Nietzsche's naturalism works like that. So he wanted to translate to translate the human beings back to nature. So it's, it doesn't seem like a project where you really want to. Uh, build some kind of new nature on a first nature, but it's it's really trying to showing that what we thought it would be a second nature is really not a second nature at all, or 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 it's more like an illusion. And we, to understand really how human being works, we have to go back, you know, seeing them as first nature things. Um, and so there, I think, uh, I, so there, I think, uh, where uh, a, a a deep difference lies between. Um, the kind of naturalism uh, that Nietzsche uh, adopts, and the one that you could find, for instance, in uh, Hegel, as, 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 as at least read, uh, you know, as a naturalist, and also probably in 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 a broader Aristotelian um, 
approach uh, to human nature and to uh, also to the human mind. Mm -hmm. So I think these are usually, you know, the major names that, you know, popping to, to one's mind when we talk about uh, human psychology or moral psychology. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, I mean, one last question then. Do you think that Nietzsche would approve of contemporary scientific psychology? Uh, so I think it, it would be um, happy to have more, uh, um, to have more um, empirical uh, informed, let's uh, say, views of the mind, you know, to incorporate in his own views. Um, so he always says, you know, psychology is um, uh, is important to understanding uh, how, uh, how we works, uh, how we work uh, as, uh, you know, uh, human beings. He says, you know, it should, uh, psychology should again be the root to the major problems in philosophy and so on. So maybe that's not, uh, uh, so what it means there may not be uh, um, limited to what we nowadays uh, um, call psychology, that is empirical psychology, but it surely doesn't rule that out. Um, uh, I think, you know, Nietzsche was also keen to point out that some uh, science, and including, of course, psychology, um, so empirical psychology, was still driven by uh, moral uh, prejudices and in maybe you know that is something that he would find again in, in contemporary uh, psychology too uh, um, and there I think he would again disagree or uh, not like it that much so to speak so he would see that certain uh, ways of um, theorizing about um, I don't know the evolution for instance of, of um, certain aspects of, of human psychology may be uh, guided by uh, moral prejudices, as he saw uh, certain moral prejudices also at work in the, I don't know, in the uh, late 19th century uh, biologist or social scientist and so on. So that may be a reaction that he, he would um, he would also have to, let's say, the contemporary uh, scientists. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I will be leaving a link to your book in the description box of the interview, Nietzsche's Philosophical Psychology. Uh, would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find you and your work? Well, uh, well I, I think the best place is by uh, is field, field papers or field people, you know, this... Uh, well, I guess, you know, uh, every philosopher knows that, so I have their... Uh, uh, so most of my papers are uh, there, and uh, they are also downloadable there. So I mean, if you want to read something more, you'll find there uh, free copies, so to speak, so free versions of, of those papers. I think it's the best, the best place uh, to find uh, my work in the internet, in particular if you don't have subscription to <laughs> journals. Or yeah. Okay, so Dr. Ricardi, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you uh, uh, again, you know, for this second invitation. And uh, well, I, I hope to write a, another book so we can have a third one. Okay. Yeah. 
Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, hit the subscription button, all of those things you already know. And please consider supporting the show either on PayPal or Patreon. All of the links will be in the description box of the interview starting at $1 per month. So it would be a great help. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkwi, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Kassan, Ivan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraujo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dremiti Grigoriev, Diego Lanonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortes, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy and Trader in NYC, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vangnagdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardus France, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.